So if you're joining with us for the first time this morning, we have been in a series over the last several weeks now looking together at the magisterial, the counter-cultural, the very difficult, but also incredibly life-giving ethical vision that Jesus gives to us in the Sermon on the Mount. And one of the things that we've been saying each week is that when Jesus invites us to himself, he doesn't simply invite us in order to receive his grace and to be forgiven. But Jesus actually invites us to take his yoke, his way of life upon ourselves, to learn how to live from him. And he says, in walking with me, in taking my way of life, in embodying my ethical vision in this world, you will find rest for your souls. You'll find life. And so we've been exploring together what that means, what that looks like in different areas of life. And this morning, in the section that we are looking at today, Jesus addresses the issue of sexual ethics. So in this dense little passage, Jesus uses all kinds of disturbing and for some of us uncomfortable words and phrases like adultery, lust, divorce, sexual immorality. He talks about chopping off hands and plucking out eyes and hellfire. Welcome to church. So I have to say, even in engaging in this topic, I preach this sermon with a bit of fear and trepidation. And I do that for a number of different reasons. On one level, I cannot caveat enough, I cannot give enough examples, speak to enough of the various places that you find yourself relative to this issue in order to do this topic justice. It also brings me some fear and trepidation because it's somewhat risky. Because as we talk about this issue, you all find yourself in a variety of different places in life. I can remember uh, several years ago preaching on the topic of sex from 1 Corinthians chapter 7 in, in my old church. And I remember arriving to church one Sunday and I saw this older gentleman in our congregation who'd been around the church for decades and decades. And he said, so uh, what are you preaching on today, pastor? I said, I'm talking about sex. And he said, well, once you get to be my age, you don't need that anymore. And I thought, really, how old are you? <laughs> you know, and want to know a little bit more about that. How is that possible? You know, and, but, you know, you all find yourself in different positions, different states in life. There's some who are young, some who are old, some who are single, some who are married, some who are divorced and you're seeking to be remarried. Some have been divorced and then are remarried. Some of you, this issue evokes a lot of hurt and pain because you've been betrayed, you've been stabbed in the back by a spouse, you've been hurt even by these words adultery and lust, they sound painful and they they create wounds in your own heart and life. And so this is a very, very difficult, it's a dicey topic and so it creates a lot of risk for us to engage in it. And yet I think it's more risky not to address the topic. Because our culture is completely confused when it comes to the issue of sexuality. And people speak about this issue. We receive messages and narratives about sex from our culture in a variety of different places, in a variety of different ways. And what we need is we need the ethical voice of Jesus to break through the cloud of confusion and show us how to live well when it comes to sex. And so that's what we want to do this morning. So I want to invite you to explore what Jesus teaches us in this text about sex underneath three headings. Number one, we're going to look together at the integrity of sex. Second, the toxicity of lust. 
And then finally, we'll look at the practice or the discipline of fidelity. So you guys ready for this? All right, let's go. Okay, number one, uh, Jesus addresses in this text the integrity of sex. Now, I want to begin uh, actually a little bit further on in the passage, down in verse 31, and I want you to note here what Jesus says about divorce, because when Jesus talks about divorce, he actually reveals to us something about marriage. Now, in the months ahead, when we get to uh, after Easter, we're going to do a whole series on singleness, sex, and marriage, and I'm going to do a little bit more extensive conversation about divorce, and so I recognize I'm not going to talk about everything we could talk about with this issue here, but I just want you to see what Jesus says about divorce in order to identify or understand Jesus' understanding of marriage. And look at what he says. He says, it was said... Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now here Jesus is alluding to some teaching in the Old Testament regarding divorce where Moses allowed for divorce under certain circumstances. Now in Jesus' day, there was some debate over what kind of circumstances merited divorce. In other words, what were the biblical grounds for divorce. And there were some people on one end of the spectrum who basically took a very liberal view and they said almost anything could be grounds for divorce. You know, you kind of find something that is displeasing about your wife and it was a a male-dominated culture, so men had the power and women were powerless. And so men in, in that day could divorce their wives for just about anything. But then on the conservative end of the spectrum, they said, no, the only grounds for divorce was adultery. And here Jesus sides with the conservative uh, take on divorce. But I want you to see that Jesus' conservative view of divorce is grounded in his very high view of marriage. He says, imagine somebody walking around with a certificate of divorce. And maybe that divorce has been signed in the courts But Jesus says that divorce has not been ratified by heaven. And so he says when that person with their divorce certificate goes and remarries, they commit adultery. Or the person who who they've divorced and they remarry says they've caused them to commit adultery. And what Jesus' point is, is that marriage creates an indissoluble, unbreakable bond that to violate is to break something that God himself has formed. And in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus puts it like this. Some some, of the religious leaders come to Jesus and they say, so uh, tell us about your take on divorce. And Jesus responds like this. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And here Jesus is actually referring to the very primal story of marriage in the book of Genesis. And in the the text, it's a really fascinating story. Uh, God puts the man that he created to sleep Actually, before he puts him to sleep, he, um, he, he declares, he says, it's not good for a man to be alone. And so he brings to him a bunch of different animals to see what he's going to name them. But from all of the animals, uh, the man cannot find a suitable partner for him. And so God puts him to sleep and he wakes up. And when he wakes up, God is, has brought before him a beautiful naked woman. 
And Adam breaks out in this poetic song. And he says, flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone, she shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. I know it doesn't sound great in English, but it's great poetry in Hebrew. And he's like, man, I've been looking at aardvarks all day and look at this, you know. And, and he's excited and, and God takes the two and he performs the first wedding ceremony. And the two become one flesh. In other words, God brings, takes these two people, and when two human beings, a man and a woman, commit themselves to each other, when they stand before a community of witnesses, and one engages in a covenant, when, when they engage in a covenantal pledge to one another, saying, I will be with you and I will be for you for better or for worse, for richer or for poor, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. That God himself is there and what is happening on earth is matched by something that is happening in heaven and God brings these two together as one new flesh. And this is the biblical idea of covenant. It is God bringing two people together to pledge towards each other, to be for one another, for better or for worse. And so when you get married, you essentially say to your spouse, I don't know what's what's gonna happen in five years, but I know this, I will be with you. I will be with you in 10 years and in 20 years, we will be together because we have formed a new covenantal one flesh bond. And in that bond, you create this great zone of security in marriage. Or you could put it like this, there there are two kinds of love that we speak about. There's the kind of love that gets a relationship going. That's oftentimes referred to as romantic love. But then there's the kind of love that causes a marriage to continue to go and that keeps love together, and that is covenant love. And of course, the love that brings us together, romantic love, it's easy. You know, it's passive. You fall into it like a ditch. You know, like you catch it like a disease. Uh, Like a foul ball, it strikes you on the head and you're smitten or like Bambi, you're Twitterpated and you don't need a college degree, you don't need need a lot of work, it is something you can experience even in junior high school and some of you did, but you experience romantic love, It, it doesn't take a lot of effort. But of course, the kind of love that keeps a relationship together is a stronger love. And this love is covenant love. It is commitment. It is when I say I am for you and with you till death. And it's interesting, even in our, uh, in our, in our, in our popular level songs, you, know, you, you find that when people are in romantic love, they find themselves always making these vows of eternal constancy. You know, a Chicago, you know, when you love somebody, always on your mind. When you love somebody, come on, till the end of time, come on, till the end of time, you know? But when you're feeling it, you're like, I'm, I'm you know, you're, you're roller skating with your junior high crush and you're promising to be with them till the end of time, you know? Or, you know, Bon Jovi, you know, I'll be there for you. These five words I swear to you. When you breathe, I want to be the air for you. I'll be there for you. I'd live and I'd die for you. Come on. I'd steal the sun from the sky for you. Words can't say what love will do. I'll be there for you. It's funny in that song. He actually has this line where he says, I didn't mean to miss your birthday, baby. (laughs) I wish I'd seen you blow those kids. He's like, come on, dude. You're promising to steal the sun from the sky for her and you missed her birthday? (laughs) 
and this is romantic love. You need a stronger, but it's interesting because when you're in that, that space of romance, you make these vows of eternal constancy and you need a stronger love that helps you keep them and that's covenant love. C.S. Lewis put it like this. He said, what we call lo- being in love is a glorious state. I, that text is way too small. I don't even know why I put it up there. <laughs> Just listen, it's a great quote. Listen to this. But Lewis says, what we call being in love is a glorious state. And in several ways, it's good for us. It helps make us generous and courageous. It opens our eyes not only to the beauty of the beloved, but to all beauty. Being in love is a good thing, but it is not the best thing. And in fact, whatever people say, that state called being in love usually does not last. If the old fairy tale ending, they lived happily ever after, is taken to mean, quote, they felt the same the next 50 years, exactly the same as they felt the day before they were married, then it says what probably never was, nor ever would be true, and would be highly undesirable if it were. Who could bear to live in that excitement for even five years? What would become of your work and your appetite and your sleep and your friendships? But of course, ceasing to be in love need not mean ceasing to love. Love in this second sense, love as distinct from being in love, is not merely a feeling. It is a deep unity maintained by the will and deliberately strengthened by habit, reinforced in Christian marriages by the grace which both partners ask and receive from God. Being in love first moved them to promise fidelity. This quieter love enables them to keep the promise. It is on this love that the engine of marriage is run. Being in love was the explosion that started it. So marriage... Biblical marriage is a covenant. It's this eternal promise that is indissoluble that God himself creates. Now somebody says, well, what does all this have to do with sex? It has everything to do with sex. Because within scripture, biblical sex is covenantal sex. You know, our our culture acts as if sometimes Dr. Ruth created sex or we created, God is the author of sex. God created sex and he called it good. He created climax and called it good. I mean, this is a wonderful, incredible world that God invited us into. It comes as sheer gift. You didn't make this stuff up. It is sheer gift and gift and grace from God. So sex is a gift from God, but it has a specific place. And when it finds expression in that place, it is good. And the place where, where sex is defined, its expression is in the context of a loving, committed marriage. And in that context, the Bible again and again celebrates sexual desire and sexual pleasure. In fact, uh, there's an entire book in the Old Testament, the Song of Solomon, that is a book of erotic love poetry in Hebrew. And if I were to read some of the portions of that, um, the innuendos in there, you would be blushing. Even you Los Angeles people would blush. I mean, the Bible has commands like, enjoy the wife of your youth and let her breast satisfy you at all times. You know, there's some advantages to interpreting the Bible literally. So, so but this is, this is, the biblical vision is enjoyment of a rich sexual life in the confines of a covenant of marriage. And here's why. It's because sex is actually the expression 
of the marriage covenant. You could say it, it is almost sacramental. Sex inside of the covenant, no sex outside of the covenant. And when it is within the covenant, it actually becomes an external sign of what God has created, namely a one flesh union. And sex not only is the expression of the marriage covenant, sex actually is, is, is one of the ways, it's one of the practices that married couples continue to sustain and nurture their covenant together. And if you've got issues here, you need to deal with it. You need to talk about it. You need to work through it because it is so vital to the health and the vitality of a marriage. You know, with, within, um, for, for moms who are nursing, there's something that physiologically happens when you nurse. Uh, when you're nursing, I don't know this from experience, but moms know this, but a, um, a hormone is released called oxytocin. And oxytocin is the bonding hormone. So that when it's released, you kind of are, you feel these warm feelings towards your child and it continues to cement and bond that relationship so that when your child is keeping you up at night, you don't throw them out the window. You're being bonded to them. And so too, actually the similar thing happens within uh, married, within um, the sexual relationship. When a woman reaches climax, oxytocin is released and it actually is a, am I, this is all too getting too specific, I'm sorry. I'm looking at you. This all feels uncomfortable to me, okay? So just get over it. Let's go. So oxytocin is released, and it's a bonding agent. So that when your husband is driving you nuts, you don't throw him out the window. You know, it actually, it's a feel-good hormone. But in other words, it cements two people together. And that's precisely why it fits so well in the covenantal context of marriage. In fact, you could say that sex outside of marriage is sub-sex. It's not even, it's not the real thing. You could say that sex outside of marriage is like McDonald's chicken McNuggets. It looks like chicken, but is it? And it might be tasty and salty, but is it healthy? And over time, yeah, you can keep eating that stuff, but it's going to make you sick and it will ultimately bring destruction. And so too, sex outside of the confines of a loving, committed, married relationship is mixed sex. It is unhealthy, it is not good, it does not sustain you. And so Jesus, this, this is the integrity of sex. It is for the context of marriage. All right, we better move on. Let's now talk about the toxicity of lust. Um, so, Against the backdrop of the good gift of marriage and sex within the confines of marriage, it is, it is within this context that Jesus talks to us about lust. And look at what he says in verse 27. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Now here Jesus is quoting from the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. This is the seventh of the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments simply state in a legal document what I think most of us know in our experience. And I think what even if you're unchurched or you haven't quite bought into the ethical vision of Jesus, you, have, you know from your own experience, adultery is incredibly destructive. And some of you have gone through the pain of betrayal and loss. You have been stabbed in the back. Some of you have lost a partner. Some of you have worked through this, but the pain runs so deep. Some of you, you've gone to counseling because your parents, your, your dad cheated on mom, and it still is with you. This stuff is so destructive. 
And so the Old Testament said, thou shalt not commit adultery. Don't bring that toxic element into your marriage. Stay faithful to your vows. But I want you to see what Jesus does here. He takes the Old Testament command and he intensifies it. And he says this, You've heard, yeah, don't commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus goes from the fruit, which is adultery, and he goes down to the root, which is lust. Now, I need to talk with you for a moment about this word lust. It's really important and really what Jesus is talking about here. And I want to make two observations in order to kind of wrap our minds around this. And the first is this. The command here about lust is although the example is gender specific, its application and the principle is gender inclusive. You know, right now I'm in a doctor ministry program at Fuller Seminary, and on convention in Fuller now, they require us to write with uh, gender inclusive pronouns. But of course, in earlier ages, they didn't have those same conventions. And so right now, I'm reading a, a book from, uh, by G.K. Chesterton, and he keeps talking about man, 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 man. But what he means is humanity. What he means is all people. And throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes gender-specific commands, but the principle and the application is intended to be gender-inclusive. And so, for example, just prior to this command, Jesus says, if uh, you've got something against your brother, go and make it right. He doesn't simply mean that only men have falling out with other men or women have falling out with men and you need to make things right with them. It's gender-inclusive, even though it's a gender-specific pronoun. And of course, later on in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus talks about uh, take the, the log out of your own eye before you see the speck in your brother's eye. Again, it's gender-specific, brother, but he means something that's gender-inclusive, both men and women. And the New Testament does this again and again on convention, based on kind of the conventions of first-century writing standards. They would use male, you know, pronouns, but they had an intention of, of being inclusive of both genders. And that's true here. Jesus is not talking about a man problem. Jesus here is talking about a human problem. Second observation, though, that you need to kind of understand this is that the word Jesus uses for lust in the original Greek is the Greek word epithumia. Can we all say that together? Epithumia. And this is a fairly common word uh, in the New Testament. And in the Old Testament, uh, this word is used as well multiple times. And in its use, most of the time, it doesn't refer to specific sexual desire. Instead, it refers to unlawful or illicit desire. And so the classic, the primal example of an unlawful or an illicit desire goes back to the Garden of Eden. And do you remember in the Garden of Eden, God gave this command. He gave this, uh, he, he said to, 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 to Adam and Eve, he says, you may freely eat of every tree of the garden. Every tree of the garden, every tree that's in the whole planet, you can enjoy, you can delight in, take it in, it's yours, but one. The one tree of the knowledge of good and evil on this one, you shall not eat for the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. There was one unlawful, there was one illicit tree. And what is the one tree that Adam and Eve desire? It's the forbidden one. And this is the word epithumia. It's desiring that which is unlawful, that which is forbidden. 
It is wanting something that God has not given you, that God has not permitted you to have. And this word epithumia is used in the 10th commandment. You know the 10th commandment? So the 7th commandment is thou shalt not commit adultery. Does anybody know what the 10th commandment is? Thou shalt not covet. And do you know what it also says there? Thou shalt not covet your neighbor's house or your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's donkey. And it's not specifically saying you shall not have sexual desire for these things. It is talking about you shall not want that which is not yours. And here's what Jesus is getting at. He is saying what is toxic is not just committing adultery. What is toxic to a marriage is when you start growing discontent with your own spouse and you start having at times maybe sexual desire for somebody who's not your spouse or relational desire for somebody who's not your spouse or emotional fulfillment for someone who's not your spouse. This is what Jesus is going after. And he essentially says like this is toxic stuff. It's toxic So he's warning us against it. And he's essentially saying, look, to, 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 to long for someone that does not, has not been given to you by God, that is sin. Now, if you are single, this means like to want somebody sexually before you enter into marriage with them, that is illicit desire. That's a desire for something that God has not given you at this stage. To desire somebody who is not your spouse, sometimes people develop emotional relationships with people who are outside of the marriage. And they start having their relational and their emotional, sometimes their sexual needs met with somebody outside the marriage. Sometimes it's not even a real person. Sometimes it's just a, a digitally enhanced, lied to yourself image that's been projected to you. And Jesus says that is toxic, excise it from the marriage. Now, of course, this stands in opposition to the liberation ethic that sort of informs sexuality in our day, since the 60s especially. I mean, the, the, the basic mantra, the sexual ethic of American culture is you can do what you want, when you want, and with whom you want, so long as you don't hurt another person. And that is the most naive sexual ethic I've ever heard on at least two counts. It is incredibly naive because of that word want. You can do what you want, when you want, and with whomever you want. But don't you see your wants are complicated? Your wants are manipulated by corporate marketers, by images in this image-saturated culture, your, your wants are actually changed and they, they, they're shaped and they're twisted by the things you give yourself to. And so I don't know why anybody would want to, if they want chicken, why they'd go to get a chicken McNugget. But some people have cultivated a desire for that. And some people have been enslaved to that awful desire. And this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, look, wants... Like, your wants can be enslaved. You are not sexually free. And of course, the, the, the whole notion that as long as it doesn't hurt another person is also a self-deceiving lie. The objectification of women is incredibly hurtful. Hashtag Me Too is meaningful in American culture because women have been abused and taken advantage of. 
It is incredibly destructive to your spouse. It is hurtful to your spouse. It is hurtful to your own self. You know, uh, men and women who get addicted to pornography, that can have a terrible effect on their ability to enjoy and engage in sexual intimacy in the years ahead. It's destructive. It's not simply what you want. Like, there's destruction here. And so Jesus is alerting us to the toxicity of lust. And so in light of the integrity of sex, what it's meant for, what God designed it for, and the toxicity of lust, Jesus now calls us to the discipline of fidelity. And look at what he says. He says this in uh, verse 29. He says, and so if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Or as Frederick Bale Bruner said, the maiming that the moral life requires will be a thousandfold repaid with the wholeness of selfhood and the life of God that comes with amputation. Or as that old famous Puritan uh, Thomas Chalmers said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. You know, there's something incredibly hopeful, I think, about the ethical vision of Jesus. Jesus, in the face of our sick culture, we live in a culture that is sexually sick. It is distorted. It creates all kind of pain and destruction and disintegration. It is sick. And Jesus says wholeness is possible. It is possible. It is possible to live a different kind of life. It is possible to be free from the addiction of sexual desire. It is possible to be content with your spouse and to enjoy them and not want something other than your spouse. It is possible. This is not unrealistic, you know, gas. This is truth that Jesus is giving us. It is possible, but it's costly. Jesus says it's going to cost you an eye and a hand. Now, of course, Jesus in our text is being hyperbolic. He's talking about gouging out your eye, chopping off your hand. It's not literal. What he's saying is that you need to take radical action against anything in your life that is toxic. Or as the Apostle Paul put it, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. N.T. writes, New Testament scholar, uh, commenting on Paul's admonition to put to death, he said this, it's full of wisdom. Look at what he says. He says, to put something to death, you must cut off its lines of supply. So the analogy here is to a battlefield. And you have an enemy who is fighting you and they are being fed ammunition and goods that are sustaining the battle over here. And he says, you know, in a battle, one of the things you need to do is cut off the lines of supply so that your enemy runs out of ammunition. And N.T. Wright says, this is what it means to put to death sin in your life. It means to cut off the lines of supply, those things that are fueling the enemy of toxic lust and covetousness and discontentment that are in your life. And then he says this, 
It is futile and self-deceiving to bemoan one's inability to resist the last stage of temptation when earlier stages have gone by unnoticed and even eagerly welcomed. That's good, isn't it? Let's read it again. It is futile and self-deceiving to bemoan one's inability to resist the last stage of temptation when earlier stages have gone by unnoticed and even even eagerly welcomed. So he says, you need to cut off the lines of supply, are you? Are you cutting off those lines of supply that are feeding into your own compromise, that are feeding into those toxic sexual elements in your life? Are you cutting it off? Now, this means at least three things. Number one, it means it's going to require intention on your part. You know, uh, I've had the experience before, and my wife will tell you this, that, you know, I'm kind of an idealist. I'm a little bit of a dreamer. And so sometimes I'll uh, see something like uh, when the, the band Mumford & Sons came out, I remember watching and, and hearing the, the banjo being played. And I remember thinking, I'm going to learn how to play the banjo, you know? I'm like, honey, I'm going to learn the banjo. And she's like, what are you, like, what are you, what are you telling me? Are you going to take lessons? Oh, no, 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 no. I'm just going to... This is just a desire I'm expressing. I'm not going to do anything about it. It's one thing to want to do something. It's another to intend to do it. Sometimes we come into church and we feel a little bit guilty. and We think, yeah, I'd, I'd like to live a different kind of life. That's nice, but do you intend to do something different? Several years ago when I was up at uh, the retreat center up the mountain in a class with Dallas Willard, uh, he had us read this, this uh, series of uh, cl- classic texts on spiritual formation and all this stuff. But one of the readings we did was from an 18th century uh, writer named Thomas, um, no, his name was William Law. And we read this book called A Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life, which is an awesome title. It would never make the New York Times bestseller. That's an 18th century product, right? But in this book, he says this. this, I read it, it struck me. He starts to uh, question why it is that Christians today live much more compromised life than earlier Christians. And he says this. If you will here stop and ask yourself why you are not as pious as the primitive Christians were, your own heart will tell you. It is neither through ignorance nor through inability, but purely because you never thoroughly intended it. Now, don't misunderstand. You need a whole lot more than intention. You need the grace of God. You need the power of the Holy Spirit. You need spiritual disciplines. You need a community of people around you. You need a whole lot more than intention, but you don't need anything less than it. Do you intend to live differently? Do you intend to pursue sexual wholeness? So number one, you need intention. But secondly, I think what Jesus is is telling us here is you need to take radical action against anything that is bringing destruction in your own life. You need to cut off the lines of supply. And what are the lines of supply for sexual sin? Well, oftentimes it's secrecy and ease of access. Does your spouse know your calendar? Does she or he know your browsing history? You know, in in our marriage, like, we are open game. Like, my wife has access to everything. I'm not hiding. And this is what we need. We need openness. 
We need to walk into the light. You know, if you are engaging in an emotional affair, what are the lines of supply for that? Well, oftentimes it's seeking moments, trying to find places where you can spend with her or him. Making excuses, texting and Facebook and spaces where you are engaging and you need to cut off the lines of supply. He says, take action against anything that is coming into your life. If you are single and you're seeking to maintain an upright, pure life, you know, one of the radical actions you need to take is against your own boredom. You know, one of the best ways to avoid sin is to have something more important to do. There's a story from church history that's a great illustration of this. It's uh, the story of Jerome. He was the author of the Latin Vulgate, so he translated uh, the Bible into Latin for the first time uh, from Hebrew. And he, he was converted uh, in his uh, mid-20s, and he had had kind of a dicey sexual past, and so he struggled with a lot of this stuff, and he was single. And so what he decided to do was to move out into the desert and devote himself to learning Hebrew. And so are you struggling with sexual temptation? Learn Hebrew. I'm teaching my children all the Semitic languages so as to um, engage their minds and their hearts and... <laughs> But sometimes the best way to avoid sin is to have something more important to do. Give yourself to something other. And so cut off the lines of supply. The lines of supply may be secrecy, ease of access. It may be boredom. But I think thirdly, what Jesus is calling us to is not only radical action against those lines of supply, I think what Jesus is calling us to is radical pursuit of marital and sexual health. You know, the single best antidote to sexual distortion is sexual health. And the single best way to move into sexual health is to have a rich, vibrant relationship with your spouse. But that ain't easy, is it? Relationships take work. Marriages take work. And it's really a long obedience in the same direction. None of this stuff is easy, but is anything worth doing in life easy? I mean, you might say, oh, I'd love to learn the piano. Well, you've got to discipline yourself, right? You've got to engage in certain practices and over time, like you can't, if you want to play like Bach, I mean, nobody's going to play like Bach, right? John, John Stuthers is close. You guy's a genius over here, but... But you need to cultivate different practices and habits in your own marriage of openness and honesty. And again, I'm not trying to simply make this stuff feel easy. I mean, it's work. It's work. But I'm here to testify that work, hard conversations, working through fights, the other side of that is beautiful. And there is healing. But talk about these issues, pursue these issues, seek to cultivate health in your marriage. And this is what Jesus is talking about. Cut it off, pluck it out, move in a radical direction to pursue the way of Jesus in this important venue of life. This time I want to invite our band to come up and I just want to close by saying this. I don't know where you are at this morning in listening to this message. 
I mean, I think probably in this room, there are so many different circumstances. Some of you are in that place where you are enjoying a rich, vibrant life of faithfulness in your marriage, and you just love your marriage. And and, I mean, I I, I think like there is nothing more beautiful than a couple who's like 80 years old and they still hold hands. I said that in the first service and somebody came up to me afterwards and said, well, we hold hands just so we can help the other stand up still, you know, but... (laughs) I said, that wasn't very romantic. Um, But there is something beautiful about that couple that continues together. I mean, this is my grandparents. This is my parents, like the best of friends. And some of you, if you've not had that picture of a marriage in your life, it is possible. And you can move into that. You can experience that. Some of you are there and you are full of gratitude. I would just say, take heed when you think you stand, lest you fall. Some of you are in that place maybe where you're single and you are walking uprightly and, and you're, you're faithful here and, 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 and you've got friends around you, you've got checks on your computer and, and you, 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 you have guards up and God bless you and thank God for that. Again, take heed lest you fall. But some of you, you're in a place this morning where you are wounded because you have been hurt by somebody and I want you to know there is a God whose covenant faithfulness to you was never broken. And it is a fidelity that moved itself, it moved heaven and earth to win your heart back to him. And he didn't just pluck out his eye and cut off his hand. He gave himself fully and unreservedly, even unto death on a cross for your redemption. And if you're in this place this morning and you feel dirty or you're ashamed or you feel stuck, I want you to know it doesn't have to stay that way. You can come into the light. And when you walk into the light, sometimes you feel like if I come into the light, it's going to be terrible. And all these things that I'm holding on to, I'm going to have to let go of them. And I don't know what life is going to be like when I actually move into health instead of living in sickness. But I want you to know there's something good in front of you. But come out of the darkness, walk into the light. And when you do, you don't meet an angry, judging God. You meet a God who is overcome with passionate love for you. And he meets and he overmatches your guilt and your shame and your sin with the infinite ocean of his forgiveness and his cleansing love. And this is very, very good news.